Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and as always, it's a pleasure and honor to have you here today. I really appreciate your attention. So it's a Wednesday morning here in Maine. Uh, yesterday, we had a big wet storm blow through, and for about three or four hours, we were without, without power, and we had to um, test or take a trial run with our new generator. All eventually went well. We got some power up. Terry's class was canceled, though her Qigong and Yin class on Tuesdays was canceled. But um, you know the 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 absence of power, uh, particularly in a fairly uh, reclusive environment that like the one that we live in now, um, really brought up um, a sense of a theme that I'm I'm going to try to continue to explore in, in some talks. But the theme of fragility. You know, when you when when your power grid goes out, or your plumbing's knocked offline, or something happens in your health, you, there's these rips or rents in our normal kind of way of operating, and uh, these rips and disturbances reveal a deeper existential kind of fragility. And I think that's, in some ways, very much at the heart of what the Buddha's awakening. Uh, entailed, and that he woke up to f the fragility of life, which you described as impermanence or anicca, and uh, in waking up to one's, really the essence of one's fragility, uh, there's a way that consciousness can uh, train and condition new ways of being within that fragility that support kindness, love, compassion, and wisdom. <clears throat> so that's what I'll be trying to get into in this talk, uh, looking at um, this this process of conditioning around the internalization or the internal development of a fragile self-sense. And it's through understanding that, kind of in the Dogen Zen master way of studying that sense of self, a, a sense of self-fragility, that we start to transform it and become, which I'll use more later, but become more of an anti-fragile self. So that's the theme of today's talk. Um, I'd be curious to hear any reflections or questions or observations you have. Feel free to email me those at josh at joshsummers.net. And before the talk, I just want to give a shout out to a, it's a course that I'll be running with Terry this May and June. It's an eight-week course. The official title is The Heart of Compassion, a yin yoga meditation teacher training. So it's a, it's a teacher training, a 50-hour training geared towards teachers on one level. Um, that teach yin yoga and want to incorporate forms of meditation or what I refer to as yin meditation. This is a style of meditation that I developed to parallel, <clears throat> to run in parallel with the uh, kind of the, the central premises and tenets of yin yoga. So this is an eight-week course to explore this meditative style and the theme of compassion within that meditative style, how yin meditation cultivates compassion and kindness towards our experience as a starting point. And then from there, <clears throat> we open up more organically to a sense of uh, compassionate relationship to our inner parts. That's a big part of the training, how to work with our inner world, the members of our inner committee with deep compassion to transform kind of some of their fraught and kind of unilateral or caught reactions to things. Um, but all of that inner work sets the stage for an ability to engage with 
the very real issues alive in our world right now um, from a place of greater compassion. So uh, it's a training, but what I want you to think of it like is compassion camp. It's an eight-week camp beamed from our home in Maine, where people often go for vacation or camp. Um, so this is a compassion camp where uh, over eight weeks, you'll receive a weekly email that includes a couple of talks, like lecture talks or uh, theory talks that I give, with a 90-minute yin yoga practice around the themes in those talks, plus about a 30-minute qigong practice from Terry, a guided meditation from me, uh, reflective journaling prompts, and supplementary reading that I've produced. All of that gets delivered so it's like a weekly lesson and a weekly outline for your practice. And the goal we have is not just to take you through the content of the training, but to also have you experience the deepening and development of an ongoing practice. So we'll be looking for about an hour to 90 minutes of regular practice a day if possible, or some, some scaled-down version of that. But the idea is to establish a regular, ongoing, daily practice within the themes that we present um, to, to really open up and explore a, a more maybe comprehensive, you could say, uh, sense of compassion on the spiritual path. So that's Compassion Camp, starting May through June. So starting the beginning of May to the end of June, eight weeks online, with, uh, there's also going to be four live Q&A sessions with me to, to go over discussion points and questions. So if that's of interest, if you'd like to uh, kind of, uh, what's the word, go to like compassion boot camp, it's not, it's not going to be that hard or that fanatical, of course. But if you, if you like the idea of a, of a rigorous, structured, and supportive eight-week program, to take the compassion in your practice to the next level or to a deeper, more nuanced level, we, uh, we welcome you to join us. So there's a link for you in the show notes. You can also subscribe to join our weekly practice sessions where we, Terry and I teach yin yoga, qigong, and meditation classes online. That's all under the heading of our river bird sangha. And sangha is the word for on, uh, not Sangha is the word for community, spiritual community. I was about to say online. That shows my own um, conditioning at the moment to be online. But uh, Sangha is a community, and we are a, uh, Terry and I run a very low-key and warm community that, that, that aligns around the practices of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, specifically yin meditation, with a Taoist, Buddhist, Chinese medicine, yogic, uh, contemplative um, pedagogy or contemplative framework. So um, we look forward to practicing with you. We uh, really appreciate and we need, I should say, listener support. So um, your membership in the Sangha or your participation in a training or any of the, the, the programming that we offer online, that is a great way to support us. Um, and we appreciate that in advance. And so a special thanks to all of you that are already supporting us with your, your participation in the Sangha. Um, so now without further ado, today's talk is called On Self-Fragility. So just to, to pick up, to continue on um, some themes that we've been exploring and, and to explore them in another level or another depth tonight. I um, just want to quickly review 
some highlights from last week and and continue on from there. Um, the theme, the Dharma theme that I'm trying to open up in our discussion and our practice is the, the theme of uh, what is sometimes called conditionality or the theme of conditioning. And um, in Buddhist psychology or in, the, in, in Buddhist philosophical psychological framework, um, conditioning recognizes, it's a kind of awakening. I mean, that's in a sense, that's what the Buddha woke up to is he woke up to how his mind was conditioned how his experience was conditioned, how all things were conditioned. And it's a philosophical statement that acknowledges that things arise, nothing happens in isolation. That's, that's a, in a nutshell. Nothing occurs, nothing arises, nothing appears in isolation. Everything appears due to other causes and conditions that support it. Um, and we can go all the way back to the, the singularity of the Big Bang and 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 speculate kind of a, you know, like a first year college way of what was prior to the big bang. And that's a great question. I don't, I'm not an astrophysicist and don't have answers, but from the big bang on everything we experience is conditioned by a whole network of, um, of interrelated other conditions. And on the psychological level, what I was trying to uh, sort of illustrate through a personal narrative was the conditioning that I've come to see around what might loosely be referred to as the, you know, the psychology of narcissism. Um, and I, I try to describe it in a way that it, it wasn't so much about the ugly pathological, uh, difficult to be with traits of narcissism, though those are sort of outgrowths of it, but more just the, the, the conditions that are required, particularly um, in one's primary conditioning complex, which is a phrase I'm starting to use. If you don't know what that is, prim your primary conditioning complex is your parents or your fa family of origin. So in that primary conditioning complex, there may be certain dynamics at play that um, condition one's mind to uh, develop a a kind of internal network of personalities or subpersonalities that are in a way trying to protect you. I didn't really frame it that way, but that's the, the basic premise of all internal parts that every internal part we have in a sense is a protective strategy or holds a protective strategy. That's trying to, to keep us safe. Um, and it's just that the the network of narcissistic parts, which I referred to last week, and I'll review and shortly, that, that network um, creates a very fragile sense of self. So in looking at conditionality, what I'm trying to really get to is looking at a sense of self that may develop or that I've seen develop in me, and I'm naming it within me to see if the, you might find resonances within your own life. Um, but that there's a fragile sense of self that forms and that fragility is primarily uh, created by the sense of self that seeks validation through reflection. So that's the, that's kind of the essence again of the myth of Narcissus that Mar Narcissus falls in love with his image in the lake in the, in the water. And without that reflection, 
without ref that reflection, this fragile sense of self feels empty uh, or meaningless or hollow or, or is, uh, the, the bit I read from Alice Miller's work last week can feel homeless, psychologically homeless. Like you just don't know where, who and where you are independent of receiving this reflection. So um, in, in that kind of fragile construction of a sense of self, uh, oftentimes people that are conditioned this way develop what I, I tried to identify as four kind of strategies for, um, for perpetuating a sense of self-validation. And the big one, or one of the big ones, is, is the, the personality of the performer. The performer who acts in ways to secure a reflection back that confirms their, their self-validation. Um, and, you know, you don't have to think of it in performer performance in terms of these grand things, like they're on literally on stage. Um, but in a, in a more general sense of just performing to secure approval, performing to secure approval. Um, and as I'll get into shortly, uh, I don't necessarily see these parts as indicative exclusively of something as pathological as narcissism. I see them as, as you know, I think common subpersonalities that maybe we all share in one way or another. This is kind of a, a speculative question of mine, but so I need to hear from you when if you resonate with this. But I, I think it's we we my sus suspicion is that we often we we might many of us may have these these internal parts. Part of us that feels we have to perform in a certain way to be to secure approval. We may have an anxious part, an inner part that that feels a lot of anxiety, and that anxiety is, in a way, due to scanning this the horizon for any kind of sign of disapproval. So if if your sense of self is is in need of a reflective validation then you're also going to be anxious. You have an anxious part looking for any sign of disapproval that you may have to correct for. Um, then there's going to be a part of us that's fearful. I, I, I know that one of myself that's afraid of, um, in, in some ways, being discovered to be a fraud. You know, if Again, if the performance is the key uh, activity of self-validation, then there's there's going to be an awareness lurking around in your mind or in my mind that there's something you might do, something you might say that would reveal a level of ignorance, a level of incompetence, a level of fraudulence <laughs> that would be just utterly mortifying. Um, and and then I describe what is often described as kind of narcissistic rage or just anger that can come up when an, an image is reflected back to this fragile self that um, feels uh, dissonant or feels uh, out of alignment or incongruent to the image that the self has of itself. And, um, you know, after our session last week, and I, when I really started to reflect on these four sub-personalities um, through the lens of internal family system, which I was speaking to, um, I, I really did start to think that these are not so much unique to a condition of narcissism, but they're just 
maybe more un, um, common strategies that many of us hold for safety, security, a sense of belonging. Um, and the, the more universal tone to these, these qualities um, was expressed by a member here who wrote to me saying, the four pillars of narcissism that you put out there seem to fit myself and so many others. That I wonder, he says, I wonder if it isn't a cultural phenomenon or a Western cultural phenomenon, uh, bred from the emphasis on achievement and especially male self-images, he was su suggesting. I'll question the, the Western spe specificity of it and even the sex specificity of it shortly. But um, he said, and he reflected on himself, he said, I experienced this, that sequence of a performer whether whatever I'm doing for my work, whether it's my professional job or teaching yoga, there's the performer at play. There's the anxiety, again, the vigilance for signs of disapproval. There's a sense of shame where, like how he described, he says, I'm doing somersaults to avoid being found out as a fraud. And then he says, in the rage, when I when see my disgusting self reflected in the mirror, so something happens that something you don't want to see about yourself or a feeling that you don't want to have comes back at you, the rage. And he says, this is dukkha. So dukkha, again, is suffering. <laughs> That's the, the Buddhist word for suffering. And um, I agree. This is, a, this, the, I think, an unexamined experience of these personalities, these subpersonalities within us, um, really does feed a very specific kind of dukkha. And I'll, I'll put that in the Buddhist context shortly. But the more I, I really started to think about these, these traits, we call them psychological traits or psychological subpersonalities, the more I started to think about them, um, I started to remember some things from my undergraduate education studying cultural anthropology. I want to say that clearly. I studied cultural anthropology as an undergrad, which means I was looking, studying at cultures and social behaviors, um, primarily in humans. But there's a whole field of anthropology that looks at primate, primate behavior. And as a cultural anthropologist, we had to take a kind of a, 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 a at least a, a one semester course on, on primate behavior. So this is not my forte, but I am interested in it. And I remember from this primatology course that a lot of psychological traits that we think of as being exclusively human are actually on evidence in various primate species and primate societies. Um, so there's uh, kind of a famous book that came out in the 90s, I think, by a, a primatologist named Franz Duvall. And it, the book is called Chimpanzee Politics and looking at the, the political games and traits and, and that, that, that uh, these chimpanzees were uh, evidencing. But thinking about these four personality traits again, if I was trying to imagine what, what within the, the evolutionary forces of natural selection would select for a performer, for anxiety, for fear, for rage, and on one level, um, you know, the, the performer, the performance trait um, 
could be seen as an ad advantage in terms of physical survival. So you know, this, I'm not putting this in, in, on, on either sex. This could be a male or female uh, trait that would perform in a certain way to, uh, to optimize the, the, the dictate of natural selection, which is that the genes, your genes are, are ejected or propelled into the next generation. Um, and on a, in terms of human social cohesion and primate social cohesion, being able to demonstrate performative skill is a huge element in social survival to, of demonstrating value to a society or to a group or to a tribe. Um, and then there's with the other traits of anxiety, just the ability to anticipate threats, you know, as, as many um, evolutionarily minded folks have said, the, um, the monkey that doesn't twitch at the, at the rustling of the bush, the monkey that doesn't jump and get twitchy is not the monkey that survives. That's the monkey that gets eaten. So as, as primates, we've, we, as we have definitely internalized a very high level ability to anticipate potential threats and to anticipate imagined threats. And that can, that, that fuels our, <clears throat> our current malaise of anxiety, but the fear of, of being found out to be a fraud or the fear of failure or the fear of, um, of just coming up short could also, I would suggest, uh, emerge from just the, the, the real existential threat of death and or the social ostracization that could come if you don't live up to your, um, your ability within a group. And what I do remember from social ostracization is that is one of the most painful and, and, and difficult emotions that humans face. So in thinking about this evolutionary conditioning, so, so last week I was speaking about it kind of in the, this condition at the level of psychology in the life cycle of an individual life. So particularly like, the conditioning I experienced from my family of origin growing up and how that shaped me. But in thinking a bit more deeply throughout the week, I've come to see, okay, that all that family conditioning is true, but that family conditioning is occurring over a deeper wave of evolutionary conditioning. And, and the two feed in together. And the more I thought about it, uh, coming back to the students share that the, like when the performer is really active, when the anxiety is really active, when the shame is really active, when the, when the, when the um, rage of the reflection that you don't like comes back, when that, when that's active, that this is dukkha, this is dukkha. I realized in a sense, this is exactly what the Buddha said himself, that when we seek a reflection, we seek satisfaction, when we seek reliable 
peace in conditions that are themselves changing. That is a strategy for peace that is flawed. It can't deliver. And this is very, as some of you know, this is very clearly described in the Buddhist formulation of, of what is often considered his core teaching, that which is the Four Noble Truths. So the first noble truth is that there's an experience of, of life that is, that is suffering, that is, that is unsatisfactory. Dukkha here means the suffering born of unsatisfactoriness. And things are, all things, all conditioned things are inherently unsatisfactory because of their impermanence, because of their changing nature. Um, but in the analysis of the, of the Four Noble Truths, when you move from the first to the recognition of suffering to the, to the analysis or the diagnosis of why does this condition of unsatisfactoriness arise, the unsatisfactoriness that we feel, that, 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 that kind of gaping hole that's never quite filled within us, that unsatisfactoriness arises due to what, what might be called self-strategies for well-being that are limited. And the, the description of these, these strategies for well-being are quite telling. The first one, just to remind some of you and to introduce it to others, the first one is when the sense of self has a strategy or a desire for sense pleasures. So that's the first one, kama, tana. Kama is the word of sense-based pleasure. Tana is thirst. So when there's thirst, when there's, when there's drive, when there's a strategy in place that your happiness, your satisfaction is predicated on achieving a sense pleasure, you're hooked in a way in the Buddhist formula. You're hooked in, in the, and you'll, you will suffer. So kama is the same term that you, that you may not re, know and remember from the, from the famous uh, erotic text, the Kama Sutra. But in this, this formulation, kama refers to any pleasure of the senses. So any pleasant touch, any pleasant sight, any pleasant sound, any pleasant smell, any pleasant taste, and any pleasant thought. When our happiness or satisfaction is predicated on securing some of these, all of these, only a few of these, it's inevitable that a sense of anxiety and fragility will arise because the very thing we're holding on to for our relief, the very thing we're holding on to for satisfaction is literally slipping through our fingers. So that's the first one. That tends to be the, the most obvious one. And when people come to Buddhism and they hear that, like, right, okay, I got to get, get over my hangups with sense pleasures. So that's where all the energy around cleansing and like renunciation and posting what you're giving up on social media comes <laughs> you go through those, those motions of like, I'm going to deal with my sense pleasure issues. But the second one, the second form of craving, or the second form of thirst that drives us into a sense of unsatisfactoriness or unsatisfaction is called bhavatana, bhavatana, bhava. 
B-H-A-V-A. And this word is often translated as becoming. Becoming. And this is one that I, I feel personally I need to hear about again and again and again. Because when I, I know when I first heard it, it was the equivalent of spiritually ripping the rug out from under my feet. So the Buddha in, in, this, in this identifying becoming as a source of unsatisfactoriness is, I think, trying to suggest that when our happiness is dependent, when our satisfaction is dependent on becoming an image of what we think we should be versus what we actually are, we will feel the dukkha of insecurity and fragility. I, the first time I heard this teaching uh, was from the, the Thai monk Ajahn Amaro, who was British. And he said, uh, just, just think through for a moment. Uh, whenever you've succeeded at something in life, you've succeeded in becoming recognized, whether it was you know, position at, at your work or maybe some form of recognition within your family or with your friend group or some moment of achievement, personal achievement that we all think is what the, the, um, sort of the gold standards of personal effectiveness and, and realization is to become what you want to achieve or to achieve what you become, want to become. And, and Amaro in this reflection says, you know, so you get home, you get that letter of, 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 uh, of promotion. Let's say, let's say you want to, you want a promotion at work with a higher salary and more status. And you get that and you get the letter and you sit down on your couch and he says, and there's that blip of like surge of yes. And then he goes like, he can't counts on his finger with five, five hands. He goes one. And before you even get to five, that yes becomes, <gasps> but now I have all this other extra responsibility. Now I'm somebody that has, people are going to be looking to. And, and if I don't live up, I could get fired or demoted and get better. And the, and, the, and the fear and the unsatisfactoriness just sort of seeps in. So I think in one way of, you know, this is another whole theme to open up in, in our practice, but with, when we consider bhavatana, the, the, the desire to become and how that is conditioned into us, it reminds us to feel and this is this is what I'll try to speak about tonight to feel um, here's a way a better way of putting it maybe to think about becoming can, that can sound a little bit abstract well what am i trying to become what you know what it, when reflecting on this is like what what does it mean am i trying to become a kinder person a more compassionate person um, one way of bringing this into your practice is to feel the momentum of this energy as a felt sense in practice. And that's usually, you know, a sense of you're doing something so that 
and then you fill in the blank. I'm doing this now so that I'll be more peaceful, calmer, kinder, more compassionate, nicer, less agitated, less anxious, less stressed, less frazzled, less neurotic, whatever it is. It's an energy to, to explore and to feel what it's like. It's a slippery one. It's a very slippery one. And it can kind of reinvent itself and reincarnate itself in myriad ways in practice. But to catch it, to catch that momentum, that felt sense of I'm trying to become, I feel like if I can just become that, then, if then, if I become that, then, you feel that hook of the conditional framework of the conditional statement and in seeing it, and this is the whole point that I'll kind of come close with in seeing these conditions, we get to start to now relate to them and shape those conditions in new ways. The, the third desire mentioned here, and then I'll, I'll move off the second noble truth, but the, the third desire is usually a desire to get rid of the word is vibhava. So it's the same word of, of bhava, becoming, with a V or a negative prefix before it. So vibhava is to literally not become. In and in, in a literal sense, it actually refers to kind of a spiritual suicide mission. To just and, and that you see this at play in ancient Indian philosophy or spirituality with people uh, ex exercising extreme forms of self-mortification to kind of pulverize their self and overcome all desires. The Buddha himself practiced that way. I, in my own more modern sense, went through severe ascetic practices. Um, and the Buddha's conclusion, and I nod along in agreement, it, that, that extremist denial of pleasure is not, not the way. That that just, um, in a way, leads to uh, an early suicide of, of depriving the body of necessary nutrients. <clears throat> but in a more conventional sense, you can also think of like the desire to annihilate is the desire to annihilate conditions in your life, not necessarily yourself, but conditions in your life, whether it's a loud, annoying neighbor, a situation in a relationship, whether it's a uh, societal condition, whether it's a world condition, you know, it can, um, that, that energy of annihilation, I think is, is in his way, the rage against life, the rage that, uh, that I think that, that I was speaking about in, in that, in that network of psychological parts. So I offer, I mention this now, um, because I think, I do think there's a, there's a universality, not, and I want to be clear, not a universality of narcissism, but a universality of fragility, of a sense of self that's, that's fragilely dependent on conditions being secured, achieved, attained, or gotten rid of. And it's, I think it's easy when, when you hear that, 
to conclude that maybe what I'm saying is, okay, we just have to accept everything as conditioning. And then we're like, and, and that's all there is to it. Except everything's that's in, everything is impermanent. Everything's conditioned. There's no, there's no engagement from that. But I, I do want to um, suggest that it's, this is not a fatalistic worldview. This is not a nihilistic worldview. And the, and the Buddha was a philosopher arguing against that, that pole of, of polarity. Of, and it was the polarity between nihilism, where there was no meaning, no, uh, no real morality, no reason to do anything other than indulge whatever you wanted to indulge. That's, that's a nihilistic, anarchistic worldview. And the Buddha's position was between that and absolututism of say of, of asserting that there's a divine soul or an eternal soul in the middle the buddha's teaching on conditionality is suggesting that while there is no permanent eternal essence in anything there's no permanent essence that's that's the the side of idealism or absolutism well there's there isn't that absolute there is conditionality there is this world of changing flow. And one way of trying to summarize, I think, the core of his, his philosophical teaching is that it's by waking up to conditionality, by waking up to it, we now have awareness that's awake, that's the Buddha nature, that's awake to conditionality, that allows us to engage and intentionally practice new conditioning so a lot of us i myself included operate with a sense that our self is a known fixed entity Josh is like this. He likes these things. He doesn't like these things. He's about this height. He has about that much hair. Um, yada, yada. He likes that kind of music. He likes that kind of food. We think about ourselves as a known entity. But when we look at ourselves through the lens of the Dharma or the lens of the Buddha, awareness, knowing conditions, we see that all the things we take ourselves to be are changing conditions. or in, in Buddhist language, the things we take ourselves to be as permanent are impermanent. A thought is just an impermanent condition. A sensation is just an impermanent condition. An image is just an impermanent condition. So our normal sense of self as an essential me is under threat by the data we receive when we meditate. And that there's a, there's a, I had a whole talk about culture shock. I'm not going to, I'll have to save this for next time. I had a, a story from my, um, my first month in Taiwan back in 1997, but I'm going to save that culture shock story for next time. Um, but there is a way that when we, when the culture of our self sense, meaning our essential self of who and what we are is exposed to the culture of reality 
in dharma practice in meditation that's one way of looking at what i think we're doing <laughs> we're actually just sitting with the way things are rather than the way we think they are when we expose our self sense to the reality of the uh, or to the to the reality of culture that we experience when we open to it in the dharma uh, initially we can feel unpleasant symptoms from that confrontation there's a way that we're outside of our normal comfort zone. We're, we're confronting things as they are. And uh, our fragile sense of self may not have a very clear idea on how to, um, to deal with what we're, we're encountering. Because again, the fragile sense of self is all about trying to secure permanence or reflection or validation in impermanent things. But with practice, that initial phase of you know the entry into the Dharma does wake us up to that pain, that pain of, of seeking and grasping and becoming familiar with that pattern, becoming more familiar and awake to that pattern, we then create the space of awareness or the self-awareness, if you want to call it like that develop the self-awareness to recognize when a suboptimal pattern is seizing us. It's really a kind of addiction. Whether it's addicted to certain kinds of thoughts, addicted, addiction to certain kinds of outcomes. Um, we wake up to that pattern and then are better able from, awake, from the position of being awake to navigate new conditions or, or establish new conditions. So, so let's say you have a habit of being angry and you start to become aware that, that's a, that there's a default reactive pattern that you have. In becoming aware of it, you now have the, 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 the ability to catch it, to see it before it, it sparks into a, into a fire of some sort. And you have with, with awareness, you can then practice a new intention. Practice of being kinder, gentler, more tolerant, more curious rather than just reacting out of anger. So if I were to summarize this, I would suggest that practice, one way of describing it, practice is a willful confrontation with the experience of our, of our self-conditioning how we've been conditioned, not just by society, but by our family, by our culture, by evolution, how we've been conditioned. When we wake up to it, there will be that, you know, if you've ever had a foot go to sleep, <laughs> it comes back awake, it fills with pins and needles. And, and you know, there's that the signs of coming back alive aren't necessarily initially pleasant. We know we have to go through them, but they're not necessarily pleasant. I think waking up to our conditioning is like that. We start to like, wow, I've never realized I was so caught by this particular way of being or this pattern. So waking, we wake up to it. And then in the waking up, as I've been trying to suggest in multiple of our sessions, we can start to heal and transform the parts of us that are burdened with these 
um, unsatisfactory uh, and ultimately fragilizing strategies. When you really see how you have a part that's seeking validation in, 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 in a particular way and how fragile and, 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 and vulnerable that can, can make us feel. Through being receptive to that, through seeing it, we develop and evolve new ways of being with what is. And the, 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 the framework for new, these new ways um, are what I'm drawing from the, the field of internal family systems, the psychodynamic model that talks about our core self possessing qualities like courage, connection, calm, creativity, clarity, confidence. I, I can't remember all eight of them at the moment, but there's a, it's a list, a really good list of wholesome qualities. And bringing those qualities of questioning, receptivity, compassion to our conditioning allows us to start to see it, recognize it, and transform it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Um, it led to some very interesting reflections in the Q&A session within the Sangha after we meditated listening. Uh, uh, so after we meditated and, and um, having listened to the talk. Um, so if you have some stimulating reflections or thoughts or observations or challenges around anything going on in your practice, I'd love to hear from you about that. Shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. I warmly welcome uh, your feedback, your challenge, anything you know going on for you in your practice to help inform uh, the way I try to speak to uh, practice that's relevant for you. Um, so thanks for that participation if you take it up. And um, again, if you'd like to join Terry and me for Compassion Camp, the Heart of Compassion, a yin yoga meditation training this summer from May to June or this spring, I forget where it falls exactly, but do check that out in the show notes. There's a link there for the Heart of Compassion, yin yoga meditation training or Compassion Camp coming soon. That's in the show notes. Um, and just as I always try to mention uh, with everything going on with the challenges everyone is facing um, and the just the ongoing stresses. Um, I just want to wish everybody well, wish you safety, health, and peace, wherever you are. Uh, keep practicing, uh, and I really look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care. <laughs>